Hello again, friends, and welcome back to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker, as this week we're looking at a sermon by Charles Spurgeon called The First and Great Commandment. It's uh, Sermon 162 in the uh, in the series. It's New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 3, and it's the sermon that we're looking at this week in particular. Uh, if you follow along, you'll know that we try and read week by week through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This week it's sermons 158 to 164, and the sermon of focus is this one, From Mark 12 and verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. It was preached the beginning of November in 1857 and the first and great commandment is the title and Spurgeon gives us what we might call a a cheating introduction. He effectively gets an extra point in before he even gets to his first point by emphasising that this is the first commandment in several senses, first for antiquity, first for dignity, first for justice, first for greatness, first in its comprehensiveness. Now, what does he mean when he uh, emphasises these things? Well, first of all, with regard to its antiquity, it is older than the Ten Commandments of the written law. It was the law that was binding upon angels before man was created. Uh, It was the Uh, the law that uh, was written into the heart of uh, Adam in the garden, binding him and his wife Eve before there was a necessity for any other command. This was written upon the very tablets of his heart. And we'll see why Spurgeon will say that. Uh, Then it's not only first for antiquity, but first for dignity. It is the king of commandments, says Spurgeon, the emperor of the law. It takes precedence over all those princely commands that God afterwards gave to men. Uh, Everything else hangs off this uh, commandment. It has a a sort of a ceremonial stature, not ceremonial in the the sense of the threefold division of the law, but there's, there's a kind of majesty about it. And then it's first for its justice. If men cannot see the justice of the law which says, love thy neighbour, if you're struggling there, love your God comes to us with so much divine authority and is so ratified by the dictates of nature and our own conscience that verily this command must take first place for the justice of its demand. God being God, how could we say that loving him is in any way uh, wrong or or misguided? This mandate is, is absolute then it is a great commandment, uh, first in its greatness, for it contains in its bowels every other. What he means there is that uh, every other commandment flows out of this one. So when God said, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day, or you shall not bow down to the idols nor worship them, when he said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, these are extrapolations of this commandment. They're the outworking or the application of it. If you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, then you will recognize uh, God's uh, absolute government with regard to your time, with regard to your heart, with regard to your tongue. It's the sum and substance of the law, so that even the second commandment, says the preacher, lies within the folds of the first. 
you shall love your neighbor is actually to be found within the center of this command because loving God necessarily produces love for our neighbor. And in that connection, then, it is great for its comprehensiveness, the immense demand which it makes upon us. It demands all our mind, all our soul, all our heart, all our strength. Uh, Spurgeon says, whoever you are, whatever nation you belong to, uh, you need to feel then the weight of this first and great commandment. And having given us uh, that immediate and that striking declaration of its antiquity, its dignity, its justice, its greatness, its comprehensiveness, all of which identify it as the truly the first commandment. He says, I'm simply going to talk about what the commandment says to us and then what we say to the commandment. So God to us and then us to God. God first and us in response. What then does the commandment say to us? It's a duty that is given to us and the measure of the duty that is described to us and the ground of the claim, the enforcing of the duty. So you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you shall love him because he is your God. Perhaps worth noting here, echoes of the structure that uh, we saw when we looked at the sermon on the second great commandment that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the the demand for pursuit of simplicity means that there's a lot of overlap here in the way that Spurgeon approaches his text. And so he begins with the duty demanded that we should love God. And he says that this is broken in so many ways, first of all, by those who hate God. Uh, who despise and blaspheme and malign him, who deny his being or impugn his character, who uh, trample upon his character, who uh, think low thoughts of God. And if you do not then truly love God, but rather hate him, then you stand this day condemned to the sentence of the law. Uh, And it's worth noting, I think, that there's a kind of a casual hatred just as there's a kind of casual neglect, that there's a, a disdain for God that comes out in, in thought and word and deed, uh, not just a, a disregard that is more passive, but an active antagonism to him. Anybody who uh, knocks on doors to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ or preaches on the street or uh, perhaps engages with a colleague at work How quickly do we find antagonism toward the true God springing up? Uh, Even uh, otherwise quite nice and pleasant people, when God comes into the picture, there can be a real reaction against him. Uh, And that's a a fearful expression of heart hatred. But Spurgeon also recognises the more passive response, just the neglect the indifference to God. They don't care about him. They have no thought of him. They have no regard for him. Uh, There's no uh, activity. There's no direction toward the Lord. They could live and die, um, but not afterwards, but they can live and die thinking nothing of God as if he simply did not exist. And and Spurgeon won't just let us get away with the, the idea of these things. 
he he deals carefully the, the 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 kind of responses that people might make well sir says one i make no pretensions to religion but still i believe i'm quite as good as those that do i'm quite as upright quite as moral and benevolent well, it's true i do not often darken the door of a church or chapel i do not think it necessary but i am a right good sort there are many many hypocrites in the church and therefore i shall not think of being religious well, spurgeon says you may be right but what business is that of yours Religion is truly between you and God, and your Maker says to you, You shall love me with all your heart. Where others fail, what others do, that is not your business. Your business is what the law demands of you. He also talks about the people who, who wonder at God, who are in awe of him, who are perhaps impressed by his creative works. They They feel something of the uh, the sublimity of the world in which they live, and uh, perhaps uh, thinking here more of the, uh, the the scientist or the scholar who's impressed by uh, geology or geography or biology or zoology or whatever it may be, uh, they marvel at the majesty of the Creator. But says Spurgeon, admiration and affection are not the same thing. You can admire what God has done. You can be in wonder uh, of what God has done, but you're not in awe of God himself. There's no love in that. You shall love God. And it's, again, then, not just a matter of curious study. It's not about uh, contemplating and, and meditating and thinking. Where is the affection, says Spurgeon? Don't be a cold-blooded thinker. Don't be a uh, let it be a, a mental exercise without touching the, the depths of your soul. And then he says, watch out too if you're a formalist. An indefinable sense of duty binds you to certain religious labours, but there's no delight in it. Yes, you talk of God with great propriety, he says, but never with love. Your heart never bounds at the mention of his name. Your eyes never glisten at the thought of his attributes. Your soul never leaps when you meditate on his works, for your heart is all untouched. And while you are honouring God with your lips, your heart's far from him, and you are still disobedient to this commandment that you shall love the Lord your God. Well, he says, I see many of you looking for loopholes through which to escape. He's clearly in the the act of preaching here, and it's been recorded in the text. Perhaps there are people who are uh, responding, reacting, shaking their heads or, or or shifting in their seats or just shrugging their shoulders or make, making that face that says, well, he's obviously not talking to me. But do you love him? It is the heart that God wants, and he will not be content without it. Now, he's going to keep digging. He's going to keep peeling back because now we come to the measure of the law. How much am I to love God? And again, some of this is designed to expose the, the, the pride and the folly that might say, actually, I'm doing okay. Because even if you imagine that you do love God and you've, you've not been touched by what he's got to say, now he's going to ask, are you loving God supremely? We're not bound to love ourselves with all our mind and soul and strength and therefore not bound to love our neighbour so. This is a greater measure. 
we are bound to love God with all that we are and all that we have supremely, completely, totally, entirely. Supremely. More than any other love. Yes, we're allowed to love our relatives. We're taught to do so. But he he that does not love his own family, yes, he's worse than a heathen and a publican. But we are not to love the dearest object of our hearts so much as we love God. Spurgeon says, in effect, you, you can put up a little throne for those whom you ought to love. But God's is a glorious high throne. Whoever sits upon the steps God is on the very seat itself. He is to be enthroned, the royal one within your heart, the king of your affections. This is the supreme affection. Everything else must be a subordinate affection. Nothing must rival God in our hearts. And now he says, uh, the, the, the using the language of the text, we're to love God heartily with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Uh, with regard to loving the Lord God with our hearts, there's to be a, a wholeheartedness to this. We are to throw our whole selves into the love that we give to him. The heart is to have its whole being absorbed into God so that God is the hearty object of its pursuit and its most mighty love. See, he says, how the word all is repeated again and again. The whole going forth of the being, the whole stirring up of the soul is to be for God and for God only with all thy heart. Here's the inner being of the man, and it's to be entirely taken up with the Lord. And Spurgeon here is is just simply but effectively unpacking the text. He's very good at this. He he picks up either words or phrases, and he uses them to frame his discourse. Uh, and, and so you're, you're you're hearing the word of God, and it's being pounded into your consciousness. Yes, with all your heart, but also with all your soul. You're to love him with all your life, says Spurgeon. That's the meaning of it. If we're called to die for God, we prefer God before our life. We can never reach the fullness of this commandment till we get as far as the martyrs. Uh, in principle, if not necessarily in practice. So there's a readiness to give up all things, house, home, liberty, friends, comfort, joy and life at the command of God or else we have not obeyed this commandment. Now notice he's not saying you have to do this. What he's saying is you have to face this. You must be ready to do this and grace will be given to you in the moment that you might need to. Then we're to love the Lord our God with all our mind, the intellect is to love God, not just believing in his existence, but loving the God who exists. You can know that God is there and you can wish that he were not there. But here is a, a mind that is taken up with the Lord God, that loves to devote itself to him, that uh, the thoughts and the judgments and the convictions and the reason are all laid at his feet, says the preacher, and consecrated to God's honour. Uh, it's a lovely phrase. God, your intellect is as fond of God as your imagination. What, what you think about is taken up with and subject to the God of Scripture. And then with all your strength, 
This is your activity. You're to throw your whole soul into the worship and adoration of God, not to keep back a single hour, not a single farthing of your wealth, not a single talent that you have, not a single atom of your bodily or mental strength from the worship of God. Everything you are, everything you have is for him. And who's ever kept this commandment then? This is the necessity of a saviour, that even if you might have said in a more generic sense, oh yeah, I, I think I love God, if Spurgeon's first dealings with you didn't uh, expose the folly of such a statement, then this should. Have you loved God with all your heart? Have you loved God with all your soul, your life? Have you loved God with all your mind? Have you loved God with all your strength? This is true happiness, if we could keep this command intact and unbroken. This is, this is what we were made for. This is why we were created, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is how we glorify him. And in this, we find enjoyment of him. Now, very briefly, just to state God's claim upon which he bases this commandment, says Spurgeon, first of all, he is the Lord. And secondly, he is your God. He is God himself but he is your God. There is his, his simple being, if you like, the, the simple fact of his glorious existence, the, the great I am, but he is your God. And he is that by creation and by preservation. He is not just God in himself. He is God to you. He has made you. You did not make yourself and you were made for him. And isn't that so often where the proud heart bucks against God? But God formed you and God keeps you. The air you breathe is the gift of his love. The clothes you have on your back are his charity. Your life depends upon him. And here's the wonder of it that God, having not only made us, but spared us and kept us and blessed us in so many ways, we still lift the puny hand of our rebellion against the God who made and preserves us. He reminds us that if somebody dealt with us the way we deal with God, we would, we would respond in a moment. And yet the Lord God in his patience and in his kindness what a marvel that God has mercy upon us after all our violations of this high command. But I stand here today, his servant, says the preacher, and from myself and from you, I claim for God because he is God, because he is our God and our creator. I claim the love of all hearts. I claim the obedience of all souls and all minds and the consecration of all our strength. What is he saying here? He's basically, this This is ambassadorial language. This is the ambassador of heaven speaking on behalf of the majesty on high and saying, God is God, you are not. All you are, all you have, all you do belongs to him. There's a real authority in this. And, and perhaps, again, if, if we are preachers, we ought to remember this. You, you can't perform this. This is not just some kind of flamboyant demonstration. This is conviction that comes forth. And if we hear this kind of preaching, we ought not to resent it. We ought not to, to say, who is this man to speak to me this way? The answer is, he is nobody. 
but the God that in whom he serves, he is God. And this man is his servant. And though he is nothing in himself, yet he is the mouthpiece of the Most High. And when he speaks on behalf of God, we ought to hear and to heed. And so Spurgeon has given the bulk of his time and his energy in this sermon to this great consideration of this first and great commandment. He's asked us those pressing questions. What does the commandment say? It calls us to love God by no means to hate him, certainly not to neglect him, and not to excuse ourselves, to offer him something less than our love, uh, to offer him our, our admiration, to offer him our uh, mere, casual, distant contemplation, uh, to, to offer him a duty that is without delight, that the way that we are to love him is supreme. It is to be with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength. And we are to do so because he is God in himself and he is God to us. So if that is what the commandment says to us, what do we say to it? What is our response? What have you to say to this command, O man? And he says, are you so profoundly brainless as to say, well, I'll keep it. I believe I can perfectly obey it. And I think I can get to heaven by obedience to it. Spurgeon says, if, if you can hear this and you just assume that you can tick the box and, and you'll be okay, you're either a fool or you're deliberately ignorant. For the moment you get a true grip upon the weight of this commandment, the force, the point of it, you will hang down your hands and you will say, if this is what is required, I am damned. I cannot begin to begin to obey this commandment. If this is the, the expectation, if this is the standard, if this is the requirement by which a man may enter heaven, then I am doomed to hell. Well, says somebody else, if I try and obey it as well as I can, surely that will do. No, it will not. God's standard is righteous. He demands that you perfectly obey this. And if you do not perfectly obey it, it will condemn you. God will condemn you for your disobedience. And at that point, you must cry out then, well, who then can be saved? If, if there's no way that I, a sinful man, can love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind and with all my strength, who can be saved? Ah, says Spurgeon, that's the point. If it's to be saved by the law, no one in the world. Here's the proof of it. It's a clean impossibility. You are guilty because you have broken this law and in it you have broken the other laws that hang upon it. But there is a saviour. There is a saviour who keeps this law. Here is the wonder of the work of Jesus Christ, that this, the Son of God, come in the flesh, who was godliness manifest. He loved the Lord his God. He loved his Father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. He has done what we cannot do. He has shut the mouth of the law to those who are believing in him. So that if you have his righteousness, if his righteousness is yours, the debt is paid and justice is satisfied. Again, this is 
this is the clincher, as it were. Spurgeon's brief on this. He spent the bulk of the sermon driving us out of every false refuge, and now he's made sure that we are brought face to face with the consequences of sin, and then we are ready to hear about the sufficiency of Christ's salvation. And so there's the the voice of distress and concern and fear. I wish that I could escape the wrath of the law in this way, or that I knew that Christ did keep the law for me. Well, Sir Spurgeon, I can tell you, do you feel today that you are guilty, lost and ruined? Do you with tears in your eyes confess that none but Jesus can do you good when you can say that you are willing to give up every trust beside and cast yourself alone on him who died on the cross? Then Christ did keep the law for you. If you have been exposed by the law, if you are despairing of your own obedience, if you realize that Christ and Christ alone can save you, if you've come to him to crying out for mercy and casting yourself upon him, then this is the man for whom Christ has satisfied the law. And then just one word for the child of God. I know what you will say. After you have seen the law satisfied by Jesus, you will fall on your knees and say this, Lord, I thank you that this law cannot condemn me, for I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, there are some who go only so far, but listen to how the true believer continues. But now, Lord, help me from this time forth forever to keep it. The believer is a man who is under the law in this sense, not for condemnation, but as the rule of faith and life. And so the cry, Lord, give me a new heart, for this old heart never will love you. Lord, give me a new life, for this old life is too vile. Lord, give me a new understanding. Wash my mind with the clean water of the Spirit. Come and dwell in my judgment, my memory, my thought, and then give me the new strength of your Spirit. And then will I love you with all my new heart, with all my new life, with all my renewed mind, and with all my spiritual strength from this time forth, even forevermore. You see the point? That having been driven to Christ by the force of these things, the one who knows Christ, who has the Holy Spirit at work in his soul, now loves this principle. It does not damn us. It does not destroy us. Though we still repent of our falling short of the glory of God day by day, yet this is our new desire. This is our genuine hope. This is our increasing expectation. This is how we live, that we seek independence upon God, to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. This is Christian living. This is Christian loving. And this then is the the lesson that we need to carry away. Spurgeon's not afraid of the deep things of God, not afraid to, uh, to bring us again and again to the end of self in order that we may see first of all the fullness of Christ and then trusting in him made alive together with him may begin to live as he lived and more and more to show our love to him who has loved us first, even our God and our Saviour. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I hope that by it we might be encouraged and enabled to live 
with love for God characterising every breath. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app. If you want to hear more like this, visit mediagratii.org to find my Word in Season devotions, John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast, or Andy Christofides, A Ransom for Many. <laughs>